Today's day 15,105. The average lifespan of a human being is only 28,000 days. Every day must count. Every day must be worthwhile. If you've been following the podcast up to now, you know that we've been talking about our future and how to best attain that future. Today, we're going to be talking about the future of higher education. It is Latino. There is a marked shift in demographics occurring not only in one country, but throughout the Americas. The numbers are compelling. If you take a look at total enrollment in higher education today, it stands at 17.5 million in the United States. And that is on the decline, declining from a high of 19 million only two years ago. But there is one demographic that is outperforming all others, and that is the Latino community. The Latino community is growing by leaps and bounds, and it's undeniable. Currently in the United States today, there are 7 million college-aged Latinos. And if you look at Latin America and you add all of that piece, there are 79 million Latinos that are college-aged in Latin America. Currently, there are 3.27 million enrolled in college in the United States today. This represents the fastest growing segment and the largest segment of growth in American higher education. But if you look at the numbers we just went over, we can grow this pie exponentially. If there are only 17 million in college enrolled today across all demographics, this means that the Latino community alone could exponentially double the amount, triple the amount, even quadruple the amount of people currently enrolled in college today. But in order to achieve that, well, we need a marked shift in the way higher education works. We must change the models. We must change the culture, the traditions, and quite frankly, the way things have been done up to now. This is a new community that needs to be served in a different way. There are marked shifts in higher education today. Our discussion on day 15,105 is squarely about this topic. We've assembled an amazing panel of individuals that will be speaking on the matter from various perspectives. People who have written extensively on the topic, who have their PhDs, who have been in higher education, and others who know the numbers from a business perspective, from a nonprofit perspective. And this is all part of an amazing conference that's a very first on Clubhouse, where you know we record all of our podcasts live. Educate, a conference first of its kind on Clubhouse. And this is the kickoff to the Latino conversation. College enrollment overall has been on the decline for years. According to the National Student Clearinghouse, there were 19.2 million students enrolled on campuses in the fall of 2015. Earlier in 2019, enrollment had dropped to 17.5 million. At colleges across the U.S., about 73% of full-time professors are white, compared to just under 5% who are Latino. That doesn't reflect the modern student body, not nationally, not internationally. Little more than half of the undergraduate students are white and just under 20% and climbing are Latino. 
Rafael, I know that you have a multinational background. Uh, you have been involved in the education field from the business and organizational side of things. The numbers that you referenced, uh, I'm a dad. Um, I'm in my late 30s. I, I have a daughter who's 16 months old. And I would say that she's no less Latino than I am just because her DNA is mixed with my wife. And so she would be right statistically, according to her 23andMe, she's going to be less Latin, correct? But I don't think the, the number necessarily makes us identify differently with our culture. And I think that as we see those numbers progress and people, uh, people are more and more similar uh, as we go down the line, I think what we need to do is we need to recognize that the power of our culture, uh, the work ethic that we're that we're very famous for, uh, it, it's going to allow us to to have our kids change the narrative of the story uh, when they get to the to the to the higher education that they're going to see. In, in my daughter's case, in, in 18 years when she gets to college, I know that it's going to look very different than the college that we're looking at now. And I'm just thankful to be a part of this group because I think some of those changes that are going to happen when she sees are going to be inspired by conversations that are had. Uh, in these rooms here. Abigail, I must say one of the most passionate uh, people I know about subjects regarding education that I've heard you speak extensively. I know this is near and dear to your heart. Me un poco because your generous and very sweet comment is something that really sustains me. It helps me. Uh, I had a dear friend remind me recently that for many years in my life, I uh, did not like the sound of my voice. And part of the space that you're creating for us here is that we give people voice. You know, we've always had it. And it's exactly the leadership that you have, Hector, to gather and to create spaces that are intentional about having these conversations. And even more so when you are discussing statistical evidence. And I will say that identity is, is a complex but beautiful topic. So the statistics you shared with us, while in fact have been true, I really want us to challenge the conversation regarding how the pandemic has affected us. There is a large number of students that have gone missing. And in fact, those numbers of the significance are really mostly Latinos or, or people of color rather, not just Latinos, people of color. So just to give you a quick snapshot here locally in the El Paso Community College, I just got numbers this week where we are missing, I, th I believe it's something like 8.9% enrollment. And we have one of the highest enrollments in community colleges. And when you look at that number, you know that it's uh, predominantly Hispanic Latinos. And you know predominantly when you drill down, it's mostly our brothers. Oh, yeah. So where are they and what's going on? And, and how are we going to make sure that we reach out to them so that they come back? And I bet that a lot of that has to do with the topic of cost. And we're going to be getting that to that in the discussion today and, and the, the topic of just simple economics of higher education, which we need to talk about because it's one of the biggest problems within a higher education today. We will tackle that issue. I want to go to Dr. Patrick Valdez, uh, who has been at the table in terms of Hispanic serving institutions, designing what comes from that world uh, and, and what the needs are. And so he's been there. He's been there uh, at those talks, at those conversations, and he's been a leader. Hector, thank you so much. Muchísimas gracias for, for having me and for sponsoring this. M most of my work has been in access and equity most of nearly the 25 
five years that I was in higher education and had the honor of being both an academic dean and also a chancellor of a community college up in Taos, New Mexico. And for me, the focus has always been on not only having providing access to our students, uh, but also how we retain them and how we work to graduate them. And that encompasses many of the things that you mentioned at the beginning, not only the, the enrollment numbers and the growth, but also once students get to our campuses, how do we retain them? And that includes wraparound services that not only involve outreach into the community, but outreach into families and really educating students that are mostly first generation and mostly low income and come from a lot of the places, you know, where I came from. And I'm almost certain that many who are on this uh, on this call came from or in this room and certainly some friends that I see that have joined the conversation. Uh, and so that encompasses not only the outreach, but also how we engage students on our campus, how we make them feel welcome. But it also includes what you mentioned, faculty, right? And how do we increase faculty that are of color and making sure that uh, we're not only addressing the needs of the students from the student services perspective, from a service side, but also from an academic side. So Vishda, your initial, your initial thoughts. Um, hi, Hector and everybody. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of your panel. So um, I'd like to bring, I guess, two layers um, to to what uh, has already been talked about. One is a very important one because I'm based, uh, well, first of all, Canada, I'm based in Canada. So I know this conversation is very much uh, more based in uh, the US. So I'd like to bring um, a couple of stats from a Canadian perspective. And also uh, uh, another layer would be immigration. So the stats are based on um, Canadian student study permits that um, before the pandemic, um, the government um, were issuing over 350,000 um, study permits uh, to international students at um, post-secondary um, institutions. And um, unfortunately, out of those um, th over 350,000 stu study permits, um, over 55% of those um, would go only to uh, Indian students and Chinese students. And I do know, as you mentioned yourself today and in your uh, description that you, we have, there are um, 70, over 79 million uh, potential um, higher ed students from Latin America. So it's very disappointing to see, uh, based on the stats, that a lot of those study permits do not go to um, Latin American students. And, um, um, and I know quite a few of my friends who have tried to come here themselves from Latin America who have struggled, um, even just by their very first application to get a student visa, they just get denied right away. Thank you, Vishta. Over to Latanya. We are seeing the declining amount of Latinos. And the one thing I think that warns us about this is there's a declining amount of uh, students that are filling out the, the financial aid form. Many of our colleges and universities, they use the FAFSA to determine, to, you know, to figure out, to predict what the colleges and what the college numbers are going to look like. So now with the pandemic, that's what makes me fear the most is there are not enough community groups um, and high schools that are able to get in touch with those students that are missing to get them to fill out the financial aid. And then the financial aid form also discusses their Pell Grant. So therefore, if our students are not receiving the financial aid through Pell Grant or any other way, they're not going to attend. So um, that's what fears that, that, that those are my biggest fears because because many of our students have had to go to the workforce to support their families and many of their family members have gotten sick or have passed away. So the pandemic is definitely on my mind. And um, but the financial aid decrease has started a little bit before um, a little bit before um, the pandemic. I think the highest number is 2011-12, but it's declined, I think, like 33 percent. I have to get the, the exact numbers for you, um, Hector, but it has declined. And I'm hoping, you know, our, our deadline's June 3rd, I think June 3rd or June 4th. So please, if you have Latinos in your area, 
please tell them, fill out the financial aid form to see what they're eligible for. Thank you, Latanya. And uh, it is indeed a America's and global wide discussion. Uh, we, I appreciate, Avishta, the fact that you brought Canada into the mix. Uh, we have El Profesor who's joining us uh, from Chile. Profesor, I mean, I imagine that this discussion for you is an interesting one because Latino America's perspective may be a little bit different, but you can't deny the numbers. There's an increasing amount of Latinos that are demanding educations, yet cost is an issue even in Latin America where costs are dramatically lower than the cost of higher education in the United States. Your thoughts, Profesor? Hola a todos, bienvenidos a la sala. Welcome everybody. Yes, uh, I was thinking that the main barrier for especially Chilean, Chilean people or Latin American people is the language barrier. It's the most difficult barrier there is for them because they always choose Mexico, Spain, or even uh, within Latin America. And, and America, the state, seems far away for just a few. English here in Chile is taught, but it's very poorly taught in schools, in middle schools, high schools. You need to be taught English outside of the school system. So for people to go to America, they they think they need to learn English beforehand. So it's the language barrier is very, it's very costly now that you speak of cost. It's very costly as well. So yeah, gracias a todos. Nearly half of Latino students are the first in their family to go to college. And just under half of them were eligible for federal Pell Grants in the United States. Grants being nowhere to be spoken of, well, in very few places in Latin America. Money only given to those with a high financial need, and that's pretty much it. So a token here and there. In contrast, one out of every one out of every five students that are white and that were first generation, one out of every three qualified for Pell Grant money. There is a difference here, everyone, and uh, the difference is stark, and I want to get into the nuts and bolts on these differences. Cost. We must address the cost. Right now, as has already been discussed by our panelists and everyone else, is that we have a demographic that is increasingly outperforming everyone else. There are questions about what COVID has done to all of us economically, and to specifically to these students and families. Will they be able to continue performing at these top numbers? I mean, we're approaching levels of 60 to $80,000 for private education and state educations that are public in the United States are also pretty expensive in and of themselves. This leads many Latinos to enroll into community colleges, not by choice, but by necessity. And so there's a lot of different things going on there. It strikes me as though there is a little bit of different rules that Latinos have to abide by because they were the rules of the past. And so I'd like to go to Dr. Valdez. I've written on mostly the formation of uh, the history around uh, the HSI designation, which is a Hispanic serving institutions. And how do these institutions uh, that receive uh, or qualify for federal funding serve students from Hispanic backgrounds? And so that's really where I've been focused on. It's most of the institutions that I've worked at throughout uh, my career. And so one of the things that is really important, and you mentioned the academy in terms of uh, faculty, and, and that's an important area to increase in large part. Uh, and I'm going to speak to leadership because that's the area that I've been in mostly. In large part, most presidents, provosts, deans still come traditionally out of the academy, out of, the, out of that side of the house, right? Not the student services side. And it's those individuals, right? Once you get into those positions where you can really start to effectuate, effectuate change uh, that addresses some of the issues that face Latino students that may otherwise not be recognized. So when it comes to statistics, I mean, there's there's really a, 
statistically and percentage wise, you know, those numbers, if you went back 50 years, you could read something out of the, the 1970s and then compare it to what you're reading today. And that really hasn't changed. So where we have to find change is the way in which institutions are serving or meeting students uh, where they're at. And that is what's real difficult to do because most institutions are still very traditional, right? Even though most colleges are serving non-traditional students, students that start may stop out, may swirl. Uh, we still uh, focus mostly on those at, that are four-year institutions, mostly research ones and mostly Ivies. And while we have an increasing number of Latino students or Latinx students that are attending those institutions, the majority are at community colleges. The majority are Hispanic serving institutions that would be considered comprehensive and regional. And so how are we educating students and how are we making sure that we're supporting students at that level? And, and the best way to do that, uh, I would submit, is to make sure that our faculty and our staff understand the challenges that those students are facing from the onset. And that means from the maybe even the, uh, the school systems that they're attending, uh, understanding the families that they're coming from. And none of this stuff is rocket science. And that, that's what's really always been um, interesting to me, that we know this, right? The data's out there. The research is out there. People have published on this. People have written about this. It's more uh, uh, las ganas, right? The will to actually take this information and say, how do we apply it so that we can increase not only the enrollments of Latino students, because that's who we're serving and that's who's growing, but how do we make sure that, that we retain them and how do we move them through the pipeline, right? So if you're at a certificate program as an institution that's a community college, how do we create stackable programs so that those certificate programs then lead into a two-year program that will then fit in nicely into a four-year program where the student can then transfer into that uh, into that pathway? Or how do we make sure that if it's a two-year degree and that's all that the student is able to do at that time, right? Because they can always come back in advance and that's what we would like to see. But let's say that they can't at that moment, how do we make sure that that two-year degree is going to lead into some sort of career path that will allow them to change um, the socioeconomic status of their families, right? Or at the very least, give them more options. So these are all the conversations that have to be taking place simultaneously when we are facing a student population that has been largely underrepresented, not only um, in terms of enrollments, right, that's now becoming the majority, but also in terms of the pedagogies and the uh, uh, ethos that exists on a campus that is not created to educate those types of students. The positive news, and I'll end on this, is that that it, it appears to be changing, but higher education is really slow. And so it, it's important that we have voices like uh, and conversations like we're having today so that we can continue to move that needle forward. And it's mostly important to bring these, uh, these things to the forefront uh, of institutions that aren't used to having these kind of conversations. So when you think about HSIs, the advocacy that was done to get that legislation started in the 70s, and it didn't start from higher education institutions. It started from Latinx advocates who were recognizing that institutions at that time that were serving Latino students mostly uh, were not getting resources that they should be getting. And so they started advancing that work at, in DC. And so the pressure came from the outside, right? Coming from the streets, right? It came from the bottom up. Now, because we have Hispanic serving institutions, we have associate an association that represents them and several for that matter. Um, now we can apply pressure from, from the top and from the bottom bottom. And so we have to be intentful and mindful. Thank you, Dr. Valdez. And uh, yes, we do have a, a great panel and uh, a bunch of people that want to speak. And so start uh, a general open discussion about this topic. 
sorry, my name is Andrea, higher education. So one of the things that, um, two things that I had, I guess, concern or suggestion with, right? I think there's a place for organizations that have um, first generation um, college students, right? So when we have those particular organizations that centers on those people, I think that helps them to move forward. But the other thing, just like the, you know, black community or any minority community, it's kind of like that, that mentorship and coaching, right? We have to make sure that they have those things to help them navigate those um, terrains as they matriculate through um, a higher education. Because left to, to be done by themselves, it is a harder way to go, you know, when it's when you're talking about finding financing or scholarships and things like that. We got to do a better job of uh, reaching out to the first generation college students and the people who are of um, uh, foreign language speakers to kind of like help them to move them across to where they need to go. And I think we just all need to do a better job at that and kind of um, rally around folks so we can make sure that not only we're helping the students, but their families also, because it's a journey for both of them. This is Andrea and I'm done speaking. And beyond a better a, a better job, Andrea, we need to create a brand new model. You know, one of the some of the conversations I've been a part of is a lot of universities scratching their head and wondering, well, why can't we get people to enroll? Yet they don't realize that the price tag number one being forty thousand to sixty thousand, or from sixty thousand to ninety thousand, which where is where which is where it's projected to go at places like University of Chicago in a matter of a year or two. Um, th- these are some of the basic issues we're playing by old rules. Not only old rules in terms of enrollment, but old rules in terms of the structure of support. I am sick and tired personally of hearing uh, Latino communities be couched as unprepared. I am sick and tired of it personally because I know otherwise. I know that the system does not serve the community that is fastest growing in higher education. I know that the system is more geared towards serving more elite populations, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't, that they aren't demanding higher education. It just needs to change from the perspective of culture and tradition, in my humble opinion. But I'm always open for other opinions. I I, I agree with you. I think it needs to change. But like, what do you do in that delta, right? So you got to get to that delta from where you are now to where it's, it's changing, right? And what can we do in the meantime while we're pushing for that change? Right, yeah, and we need to have concrete, concrete solutions for that. You're absolutely right, and that's something we want to definitely discuss. Julian, go ahead. I think you wanted to jump in. So glad to join everybody today. Um, I'm Julian vasquez Heilig, <clears throat> Dean of the College of Education at uh, the University of Kentucky. So I sit on the leadership team uh, of a large Research One uh, university. So... We see the nuts and bolts of, of how things operate. I, I just want to make two quick comments. One about the cost. So, the, you know, as land-grant universities, we do have an important uh, role in educating the citizens of each state. Private institutions like University of Chicago, which you talked about, there's a prestige factor, quite frankly, that goes with how much they cost. Sure. But, but that also, what comes with that also is that if you're under a certain income at Harvard or Princeton or some of these others, then then you're going to get a full ride, Stanford, et cetera, right? Um, now, the land grants have a, t- have a tough situation right now because, you know, 30, 40 years ago, uh, when my parents attended the University of Michigan, it cost $1,000. And, and that's because the states at that time highly subsidized public education. But what happened over time is that the baby boomers spent a lot of money that they didn't have. And 
that money was redirected to other things. Um, and so state institutions just don't have the support that they had before, and that's why they're more expensive. But we could make the decision as society that states should be more supportive of their public institutions of higher education, and they would instantly become cheaper. Um, I think the second point I would like to, 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 to relay is about encouraging each of you to get your doctorates. Why is this important? Because um, less than 5% of faculty in the United States are Latino. Uh, we just published a study on this last year looking at faculty diversity using the national ipads data yep. and the thing is is as as patrick said this is a pipeline so first you have to be a faculty member then you have to be tenured and then you have to be a chair and then then you go into a dean role and then you become a provost and then you become a president and to be frank with you the things that i've heard from my colleagues about the latino community the african-american community and when we talk about diversity even after george floyd um, there are still some problematic conversations, the old tropes about not enough qualified minorities, we should go slower, uh, etc. But not until we have Latinos in positions of power will the paradigm change. And the way we get folks in positions of power is they have to climb the ladder within institutions of higher education and do it with their allies. So, uh, you know, my uh, charge to you today is consider getting that PhD because if you join higher education, you move up the ladder, you're going to move the needle for our community. I want to follow up on something that Julian said. Agree with him 100%. The privates are in a whole different, different realm. But when it comes to public education. I mean, I spent a lot of time in front of New Mexico legislature talking about reasons why they should be supporting not only the community college that I was overseeing and running, but also our public institutions. And so when you think about tuition being increased at the state level, a lot, and, and I'm not I'm not making, I'm not saying that uh, that they, they should just be raising tuition uh, willy-nilly, but the fact is that you have to make up for the cost. And if you are not if you're not subsidized by the state, which means taxpayer monies that support those institutions institutions, uh, then that money has to come from somewhere. And typically what then happens is it gets pushed, pushed on to the students and to those families, right? Yeah. So they have no choice but to borrow more in order to get a degree. Now that's a much larger, that could be its own room in itself or several rooms. But I think that that's an important point that he made because what it really means and the bigger issue is how do we view higher education? It, it used to be a public good uh, and now it's considered a private commodity, right? Those who can get it, get it. Uh, and those who can't, well, maybe they don't. And that is not the way should we, we should be thinking about an educated proletariat, right? An educated society. And so if we really want to drive down costs for tuition and make sure that more low-income students can get it, then we have to pressure our legislators to continue to fund. And the last thing I'll leave you on is, you know, is it a coincidence or intentional that as we see more and more students of color entering the pipeline to higher education, that we see less and less investment from the state? Uh, and so that's something that a lot of people want to talk about. And it's something that we should talk about. You know, one of the things that I think is is very important to note. There is a demand, there is a demographic that does not fit into the current costs of education as we're structured for a community that is not ours, that is not the Latino community of the United States or Latin Americans wanting to get an education somewhere throughout the Americas. Here are some cases in point. To get an education at El Tec de Monterrey, which is US accredited, we can have paying full boat, a full four-year degree 
of a bachelor's that is US accredited for $40,000 total. Yet that is without scholarship and they give plenty of scholarships as well. And now you're seeing some Americans choose to study at El Tec de Monterrey. How do they pull off an education at a four year prestigious institution at $40,000? Different culture, different makeup, different costs for that education based on those needs. If we think about the number of people that are being um, kept on payroll in particular departments at different universities. I know this is a controversial point of view, but some of these are now heavily loaded, heavily loaded in areas that a lot of Latinos, frankly, have no interest. Right now, a 2019 report to Congress said that uh, almost 60 million Latinos in the United States already account for 2.3 trillion in economic activity total. On its own, they would rank as the eighth largest economy in the world, but the economic makeup is different. Right now, a report to Congress in 2019 puts the Latino community as one of the primary generators of entrepreneurs in the United States. So obviously our community is not being served by these institutions, whether they're state institutions or whether they're private institutions. And the ones that are serving our community are community colleges. But I insist in, in my own opinion, I think this is mostly because they are forced based on economics, not necessarily because they have a desire to go there. Um, I, I appreciate what you said. As, a, as an entrepreneur um, myself, uh, one of the businesses that I'm in, I can employ people who are credentialed uh, all the way from a personal trainer up to a chiropractor. Okay, Any of them would fit within my business model. But the one of the things that I need to look at is what does it cost my business and what can my business make? My question becomes, if currently as of 2019, 47% of people living in the United States uh, had uh, three or more years of college, 47% uh, of those people had gotten a bachelor's degree. I think that we see a large number of people going into entrepreneurship because of the time value of investing four years. And, you know, let's face it, we're looking at most schools are 15 and $20,000 a year. You're looking at $60,000 of debt that you can't even live in at that point. Uh, what I'd like to have a conversation around is how do we take, and we respect both the people who have the drive and the determination to go the higher education route, as well as the people who want to go maybe more of a credentialing route. How do we value those people who want to learn how to program, uh, who want to learn how to um, be uh, uh, an HVAC technician or go into automation and manufacturing? How do we make sure that the value of those credentials and those, those, uh, those different schools that offer something like that are just as valuable and seen as valuably in the community as a higher ed degree? Because I think we need to make space for both. I agree with Rafael in listening to um, Dr. Valdez and listening to some of the other colleagues. I, I believe that we are in a shift in understanding the the needs of the students that we are now serving. And there is a huge uptick of necessary adjustments within certificate programs um, that are of high value. In fact, I would venture to say that the future of a lot of our new model systems are going to include a new way to um, create possibilities that we just haven't seen before. And we know that to be true in every century and every, every 10 years, every five years, we turn over and ways and we just never really imagined and, and we're we're there and especially the pandemic has pushed us innovatively to reevaluate the way that we deliver and the things that we're delivering. And I think the hope and the promise here is that we're serving the most complex and diverse 
population that we have ever seen. And we're only going to get more complex and more diverse in the most beautiful way. And I think that in many of the institutions that are driven by uh, student services, we know that there is going to be forced, they're going to be forced to look in the mirror and say, what is it that we need to do in order to serve our students? And this doesn't start at the higher educational level, to be fair. I come from a, a both worlds, the higher ed and the PK-12. And I will tell you that we are really evaluating ourselves yesterday. We are looking at early childhood access. We are looking at what does it mean to be a learner that thrives in online environments. We're looking at K through fifth grade. We're reevaluating how do we begin STEM programs and other options early on, even earlier than we had had them introduced to ourselves. And then we want to continue those those, those pathways of interest of the students that we serve now, the young students, they're not tolerating these, these mediocrity curriculums. They want and demand, they are innovators. To Rafael's um, point, we have entrepreneur spirits that have we've, we've just continued to see thrive and arrive in spaces that we just have never imagined before. So to that end, and with all due respect, to all the types of people that we are serving in the Latinidades and, and within uh, country ba uh, boundaries, because I can't imagine that the shift would only be in the US. I imagine that it's a global shift of because we were all under a pandemic. We're having to look at new delivery systems, new approaches, new topics, new interests, and I'm hopeful. I am definitely hopeful too. You know, I want to jump back into um, what we're talking about. We're talking about community in terms of our Latino community. And so I'm gonna jump into community cultural wealth because that's my expertise. And you know, Tara Yoso, that's where she started community cultural wealth is understanding our first generation and our diverse communities and who they are and where they come from. You know, their aspirational capital, their linguistic capital, their familial capital, the navigational capital, the social capital, the, you know, all these capitals that our, our, our students have, our Latino students have. In my mind, the shift has to be grassroots. The shift has to be understanding the, the, the families, understanding who we're trying to recruit to our colleges. So if we have these big financial gaps, which is, which is there because it's so expensive, but, if, but first we're, schools can charge a lot of money for their students to go there, and then they're not relating to the families that's the biggest frustration that I have uh, being at a big, you know, a big 12 PWI, you know, predominantly my institute here in Kansas, um, trying to recruit um, students from Dodge City, Kansas. And me, for me to go to the diversity director and say, hey, what are you doing to tell my, 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 my sweethearts, this, this, mis cariños, the Dodge City, uh, <laughs> that they're, they can send their kids here. And they're going to be safe. And yes, he is familia. You know, so what are we doing? Like, we have to understand. I guess I get really emotional about this or very involved in this is because community cultural wealth, where Terriosa started, was at the university level of having our university professors, of having our, you know, our instructors understand where their community is. And until our universities understand that, until our universities understand that, that Gloria Latson Billings talks about that opportunity gap, until the opportunity gap is understood, until our culture is understood within the bureaucracy of higher ed, we're just gonna keep on having these conversations in terms of where do we go. So again, we have to understand the culture. 
We have to reach out in different ways with recruiting. We have to understand how we keep our students. Um, so this is Latanya, and I'm done speaking. Hi, uh, Latanya, if I could add to what you're saying and really to what everyone's been saying. So I really want to emphasize this, um, this point that keeps coming up. And it's the urgency of the matter, uh, what's happening in our community and the demand against how slow higher ed is and how hard it is to make movement. We are making big ask. We are asking people who have never listened to us before to understand our community, understand our needs. And that has not been working. The urgency is now. So what happens? Something big needs to change. I think something needs to bust immediately if we really want to serve our community. I will tell you what's happening on the ground right now in conversations I've been in with employers. So now um, employment is really tied to how quickly technology is moving. Our biggest and most powerful employers are these tech companies. And so the the skills, the skill set, this demand, you, know, you see this big demand for technical skills and employers are are not are not happy with the training that their employees have been receiving so they are starting their own education they are doing their own micro credentialing and they are in the works partnering with community colleges to provide technical skills to get the employers that they need and um uh, and i don't know how big this is going to get where this is going to go but um, it's another opportunity. I see the market uh, is shifting more opportunity for our Latinos. It's good. There's probably pros and probably cons to all of this. But um, the things are shifting right now. This is, you know, I think it's starting to be like the perfect storm, right? Exactly. As exactly. far as they need students, right, yes, to keep exactly. the revenue going. They need um, the prestige. They need to meet people where they are and the ones that are willing to try to innovate to do some shifting to start meeting people where they are and to start growing the minds of their students those are the ones who are the winners and i i think that is now shifting because some of them are going to have to close because they don't have the students right and so I think that, you know, I guess it's kind of like that perfect storm and I don't know when it's going to like break or whatever, but I think that we're at a point where it could be possible that you have to be ready for that to happen, to slide into those paces to say, let's, let's develop something new. Let's do some human centered design. Let's do some Latino centered design. Let's do some, you know, African-American sense of design, some inclusive sense of design so we can design the education the way it needs to be. I built a technology and I tested it in Oxnard in a school called Pacifica, which is predominantly Latino. And the year before I got there, they had 414 seniors out of 740 go to college. By year one, I got five, it up to 523 and by year I got it up to 636 and that was simply by showing them their um, roadmap, if they went to community college, how to get into college for free, if they went to a state school, how uh, what 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 paths are there to go for free, 
And then if they want to go to a private school, I laid out the, here's the exact private schools that if you get into, all of them will be debt free. So the whole idea was just showing the kids what their paths were to get into college and graduate debt free. Um, and it was extremely successful. I now have a financial company called Better Wealth. Um, I'm gonna take it on and give it as a free service to everyone. But for me in the Latino community, what drove the kids most was explaining to them exactly what options they have because for some reason when they knew the end result, they gave way more effort. And then the step two was explain to them the actual structure of college because so many kids have so much um, anxiety and fear of college. But then when you break it down to them and unpack it, it's in like the most productive sentence I ever used with students was you're in your seats 25 hours a week on average in high school. In college, a full schedule is 12 hours a week. You can go 15 hours a week and you're doing more than a full schedule and you can graduate in four years. So there's just my two cents. My name is Jeff. Thank you. Yes, I also, um, this is Dora Maria here. I wanted to also comment on uh, this particular aspect. Um, so from my perspective, I'm coming from, you know, being an inclusive engineer. So I'm working with nonprofits like the Professional uh, Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers, who does work with middle school, high school, community colleges, and even up to grad. And then also from the perspective of corporate ERGs, right? So the Latinos at, at all these companies who are also doing the work in the communities, helping to raise not just scholarships, but also training programs, workshops, trying to just fill that gap while everyone is trying to figure out what this landscape is looking like. But recently, this past year, um, my company started an apprentice program. And part of this apprentice program for high school students is that they're being recruited at a sophomore year at 16 years of age to work at a very part-time level, like they're doing um, like 16 hours a week or something like that. And they are going through a curriculum, prepping them for career, for whatever like job branch they're looking for, but they're doing a, like a mini rotation in those three years. And part of the package is a scholarship to go to college, a college of their choice and to study whatever it is that they want. But they're getting this real life work experience with coaching, with mentoring. You know, I was very fortunate to, to study under David Tyak in, in graduate school. And, you know, quite of the few things that we're talking about right now, it's old things becoming new again. Uh, I mean, the reason why we had Chicago Vocational High School was because of this conversations about apprenticeships and there's been long-term conversations over a hundred years from the business community that they would like you know institutions of higher education and um, public high schools to do specific training for their um, for their for their companies um, so there, there's a quite a few of these conversations that that span span the decades and I, I think that's that's a really important thing for us to, to think about which is that you know often what's new is is what, what was old again so uh, that that's one thought I, I think the second thought is you know um, students uh, have a lot of options when it comes to higher education I think it's true one person commented that the smaller institutions are struggling but I'll, I'll be frank with you the big institutions are not struggling um, our enrollment was up three uh, percent this last year our our retention of students was up four percent from the year before um, you know our applications are, are up 30% we've doubled our students of color in our in our admits the brand name schools you know like the Ohio State's the Kentucky's the UCLA's they're 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 doing fine in this environment because they're brand names if you, you know if you if you go to the mall there are different priced things that you can buy if you want an inexpensive education you can get one from 
National or from the University of Phoenix. Uh, there, there are inexpensive educations out there. But I think what we need to be focused on is how do we provide access to Latinos across the spectrum of types of institutions. Um, at Kentucky, when we offered uh, some extensive scholarships to Latinos from California, they oversubscribed this scholarship quite dramatically. But you know what? It's the leaders of the universities and the colleges that make decisions about what their recruiting departments look like, what the scholarship being looks like, who gets admitted. And so that's why I circle back. It's very important that we have Latinos like Patrick and others on this call, Abigail and other folks in positions of leadership because they do the strategic work that where the where the rubber meets the road. And that's how we get results by doubling the number of students of color and doubling the number of teachers of color in our teacher ed programs because you have leaders that are prioritizing the things that you're talking about here today and you should be one of those leaders here with us helping turn this ship can i speak this is cristobal greetings everybody this is cristobal so you know there there's some truth to what julian just said i think that's critically important is one we we definitely need the numbers and uh, in the academy in the higher ed spectrum but also this sense of advocacy for the inequity the systemic inequities that play out across the entire pipeline. That advocacy has to be there. The inequities are stark. The inequities are extreme. I can't tell you how many times I look at school districts and there's under-enrollment of Latinos at the early childhood level and no one's addressing that and fighting the district to say, why aren't you providing access for early child education? And I look at the numbers when it comes to college readiness data. Eighth grade algebra, high school calculus, high school AP coursework, time and time again, underrepresentation of Latinos. When you look at that how that translates to access to higher education and throughout the pipeline there's some very real systemic inequities that need to be addressed that need to be taken into to not just at the local level state level and federal level but we need to build that sense of advocacy to transform and address these systemic inequities that are indeed playing up and essentially are oppressive to our communities that that has to be one of the conversations that we really have to be strategic about one of the things that i don't see in dc is there's hardly any latino K-12 education policy advocacy happening at all. Now, Unidos has done it on the side, but they do overall policy, but they don't strictly do the ed policy advocacy to address the inequities that plays out in the system. We don't see, an organ- now we have Excelencia at the higher level that's doing a phenomenal job. They're the only research-based organization that is doing that. Now we have a HAKU, but they're not research-based. We have other organizations that do it on the side, but we're not we're not fighting and, and issuing the sense of advocacy to directly address the the inequities like we like the Urban League does, like the NAACP does, or, or the United New College Fund does. That's the area that we need to have to have some strategic conversations about how we increase the sense of advocacy that connects to what Julian is saying. We definitely, we recognize that Latino educators throughout the whole pipeline are doing what they can to, to advocate for their communities, for their families, for their students. But we need to up the game on this. Like we seriously, when we, rec- when we begin to see those inequities in the system, it becomes a question of, okay, so how do we transform and do it systematically? How do we address these systemic inequities? I think that's a big conversation to, to this whole to the whole setup and moving forward. I think that's just a critical element. We have to fight for it. We have, we're in the struggle. To what Julian and Cristobal just said, so when you think about the enrollments not hurting at four-year institutions when it came to Latinx or just students in general, and the, the idea that everybody got going to COVID was that the community colleges were to be the ones that benefited because low cost, regional, and so that's where everybody was going to go. But what we, what 
they failed to recognize with that is that most community colleges serve the students who face the greatest challenges. And so this idea that, not this idea, but this reality that the majority of Latino students or Latinx students are at community colleges, right? Finding a, a entry point into higher education, right? Or post-secondary education. And yet these are the institutions that often get most penalized. And so this idea of advocacy at the national level uh, is important. Uh, Haku does it, as you mentioned, and a couple of others, but there's not this real concerted effort across the Latino community to figure out ways to put pressure on our representatives on legislation that addresses these issues, right? So then, then moreover, you get these community colleges and other comprehensive four-year institutions that are facing or that are educating students who have the greatest challenges to overcome to get an education, and then graduation rates are not where they're supposed to be. So then you got legislators coming in who are still focused on traditional four-year and saying, well, if you're not educating, if you're not graduating students, then you must not be, you must be being derelict in your student. And while there is definitely a need for change in those areas, that's not the case with all institutions. Some institutions are committed, but the challenges that those students face, the challenges that the institutions face are really great. And so they then release, receive less funding because their retention and graduation rates are low. And so we're penalizing the institutions and the students who need the most support and the most funding uh, because of these metrics that are still based on these traditional formats. Uh, and so until we can get together and organize as both uh, Cristobal and Julian have stated, we're going to continue to see these issues. So it does take all of us to get on the same board so, so or align. So this is why these conversations are important. Here's where, where I think we need to, to come to some sense of understanding. Um, I, I spent over 20 years of my life in higher education, been at the Ivy League level, at the nonprofit level, have founded an institution dedicated to this very effort. Um, and here's the thing, and, and with all due respect to everyone's, to everyone's opinion, whose rules are we playing by? If we continue to say until we get critical mass in these positions, then we're always going to be chasing our tail and we're never going to get there. The numbers and the economics are already compelling in and of themselves. A lot of the narrative we hear in higher education is a narrative of pobrecito nosotros, of pobrecito yo. Yet seldom do we hear the narrative of take a look at the awesome power that our community brings to your higher education table. And, and what I mean by that is I've sat down with the presidents. I've sat down with provosts. I've been talking about access for Latin Americans, access for U.S. Latinos from the perspective of going beyond token scholarships. We don't need token scholarships. We need to figure out a way to change the model of higher education. And I think has been already said in the room, what we have right now is the unveiling of our eyes with COVID. When people were saying something needs to break, something needs to go, it's begun to happen. With all these institutions always sitting me down and others in this room down saying, well, you know, it's 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 tough because it really costs a lot of money to educate and um, we don't really know if we can make it happen, but uh, we're, we're continuing to try. And yet for two years, we've been trying to charge $40,000 a year for hybrid online education. Um, I think that's a massive turn in the tools and resources. Hybrid experiences are coming. Empresas in Latin America that are for profit in the education game are already touring with the edX Coursera US model for Latin America. You have Future Learn in the UK trying to figure out new ways of doing the edX game. And my question is, when do we begin to utilize these resources to really say we can provide top-notch educations sans the 
whole you know prestige element yes we can debate that uh till the cows come home but we can provide quality education that is either micro learning uh programs or quote-unquote non-traditional and i hate that definition because non-traditional denotes that you're not following the norm whose norm are we talking about and so that's where i come from in terms of the debate the numbers are compelling in and of themselves i i hate being described as a community that needs remedial help I am, we, we are not that community. The numbers already told us so. I mean, when there is a total enrollment of 17 million and Latinos are already the fastest growing and largest at 3.27 in terms of other demographics, and they're the, they're the only ones that are growing, that says something. And when there's 7 million Latinos that are college age right now, that means we can still double and then some. That's only US. And if we were to add Spanish to our repertoire of things that uh, we can educate, on not just Spanish as a second language, but but actual Spanish coursework uh, in both dual languages, um, that opens up 79 million in, in Latin America. That is more than 10 times the current enrollment of, 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 of in, in higher ed. And so that to me is the discussion that I think we should uh, rally around with for presidents and with provosts. And, and that's where I want to, to be in terms of our future, because the future, the future is going to be defined those are some good points right but the, here's here's some numbers since you're, you're putting out some numbers and this is k-12 which, which is part of the pipeline conversation of higher ed and in, in k-12 across the u.s we have about almost 30 percent latino students you have about 15 percent that are black students now when you look at school leaders or educational leaders across the u.s there's about 11 percent that are black and only seven percent that are latino you know how many majority latino schools you know how many hsis that have majority Latino students, how many Latino leaders they have. There are way too many educational spaces that are not led by our community, that are not advocating and doing their best and contribute to the systemic inequities of the system. That's where I say we need to start having these conversations where we say, look, these are Latino schools. These are Latino communities who speak Spanish. Why don't the educational leaders or the teachers look like and speak like the communities they serve? I'm oh, doing a session that, for, yeah. for, for a school district tomorrow where it's a uh, 77% Latino students in the whole district. This is out in California and it's white-led district. Their schools are entirely white-led and they're not having conversations about saying, hey, these are Latino schools. These are Latino districts. How come we're not having a serious conversation about equity specifically tied to Latino communities and Latino students? Uh, I've been brought in basically by my black colleague because it's an equity conference that is talking about black inequities. And I'm coming in and saying like, wait, wait, did I miss a boat? Why am I the only one talking about Latino inequities in this inequity? And this equity conference that, that they're hosting tomorrow. And I see that time again, we're not saying enough of saying, look, we need a Latino educator who speaks Spanish in this community who's majority uh, Latino and Spanish speaking. And we need to take that all the way to higher ed. How many HSIs are white led and white ran? And essentially, it's so this is where Gina Garcia with decolonizing HSIs matters. This is where it's still plantation politics that Frank Twitter is writing, still playing out in these Latino communities on the border as well. And it's, and we have to play up these, these same conversation and, and nerf from sometimes uh, the advocates that has played out in black communities when they've had to say look we demand this xyz because this is the inequities that we're facing and play that out across the entire system because we are extremely underrepresented at the leadership level k-12 and higher end extremely and it contributes to these systemic inequities that we're seeing that's the up game that we need to play and we need to be direct about it and call it what it is
I agree. And let me add one more comment about modality because the, the, the moderator talks a lot about modality. Those things are all available. We don't have to have Coursera to do that. If you want a micro-credential, if you want a certificate, if you want to be online, if you want to be hybrid, higher education has those things and they have all different costs. But, but let me tell you this. I went to Stanford, okay? And the Stanford undergraduates, they network with each other and they start mm -hmm. companies because they're right there with each other, right? Uh, and they have relationships with each other and they become millionaires within 10 years. So the thing is that there is something to be said about having the, the college experience too. So yes, those modalities are available. We don't need Coursera, Coursera to do that for us. Um, if, you, if you'd like to do professional development with us in the summer, et cetera, et cetera. I teach a class for the community in the summer about education reform. Those things are available and they're available at, at different costs. Right. So, uh, you know, I just want to put that out there. That work is happening. And, and Julian, you could you could call me Hector, man. I mean, we're, we're all in one community here and I don't want you to feel like uh, I'm, I'm just the moderator. Uh, listen, I, I just come from a different perspective where I know, man, I, I went to Georgetown, so <laughs> I get it. I and just being part of those circles gives you the idea of, hey, this world was not built for our community. This world was not built for uh, people like you and me. This world was built for someone else. And when the numbers show that that world needs to be built that way, then okay, great. Then we need to play by those rules. But when the world is changing and when the world cannot afford the $60,000, $80,000 price tags, and yet there are Latinos beyond you and I that have the chops to get into these schools, but can't pay for them and are having to then opt to go to a two-year institution because they couldn't land that token scholarship or they couldn't get that one in a million uh, position. That's, that's an issue. When you have such a critical mass in terms of numbers. That's the only argument I'm trying to make. I think that we're all actually saying the same thing. It's just a matter of pooling resources and, and, and coming together in the different ways, right? So when you think about the work of the, the HSI legislation that was out there, that was done early. I mean, like I said earlier, that this was not done from the higher, within higher education. This was done from without. These were these were uh, uh, groups, LULAC, you know, you had SED, you had UNIDOS, you had all these groups that were coming together to say these things need to be addressed. And so we we've reached that moment where people are like us who are in higher education are saying, hey, we need La Comunidad to come together with us to help push that needle because we're the voices from within, but we are also, you know, uh, facing a system that is, you know, centuries old, right? So we have to help turn this vote. So these conversations that we're having today are important because they're, to me, showing where there can be alignment so that we can advocate together and coalesce so that we can move that needle because I think that we're all saying the same things is that this, this system has to change and how do we change it and my i submit the way we change it is by having these dialogues and finding ways where we can come together to keep moving it forward so go ahead jeff sorry about that oh yeah no worries patrick that was a very good point i was just going to say if, if you if it need, if it's going to change we have to change the business model the schools use and just to give you an example georgetown and stanford are different the way stanford does is their enrollment management is based on money they have they have so many positions that they will take at certain incomes and the rest of the incomes have to come above like accredited accredited investor level ones that are statistically going to give back to the school. So when your family makes 400,000 a year, and, or maybe just, let's just say you make 400,000 a year, another family makes 160. Well, that family at 160 may not be able to afford Stanford because they're not getting in for free where the 400,000 may, but the, they're not going to give a, a family that makes 160,000 a year a larger scholarship than they would to a family that makes 400,000 a year because there's a higher statistical chance based on their enrollment management that the family that makes 400,000 a year is going to give them that money back over time. And so that's just an example of how enrollment management works. And for
for example, eight years ago working with UCLA, they told me they had a specific race on campus that they had less than 100 students of outside of athletics, and they needed people pushed there in that race. So I always tell families, don't, you know, don't be afraid to ask admissions if they're looking for a specific demographic because they might be trying to fill it. Can I give you a one piece of inside information before I go? Um, so that is that I learned this last week that MSIs are receiving a much greater share of the recovery monies, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of worth. And one of the other interesting factoids uh, that I learned um, in these conversations is that about half of the money coming out of the recovery is going directly to student aid and not to universities. So I just thought I would just put that out there that, that that's what's going on right now behind the scenes. Uh, Julian, I, I definitely appreciate you, man, and I appreciate the work that you're doing. I don't want to come off on the wrong, wrong foot with with you this is the first time we're in a room together and i appreciate what you're doing and the fact that you're in kentucky even more so because we need more more latinos in 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 areas all over the country that aren't necessarily your urban centers so thanks for what you do and thanks for everybody that is here uh, before we go um i want to just go around the table and get some final thoughts from everyone you know i heard today a lot uh, of this call for more latinos and leadership positions and i'll say from my lived experience, I've worked in higher ed my entire career. Um, my pace and the pace of higher ed does not match. I'm at my tipping point. I'm heading out. That's me. I don't, and, uh, and and I'm happy to be here so I need to find partners within the system so we can continue to move together. Thank you, Hector, for providing the space. Thank you all for being a part of it. I, you've been uh, so awesome in terms of being a leader throughout Clubhouse and talking about your experiences in higher ed. And I know you're going to be an influencer inside or outside of education in, in the world of higher in the world of higher ed so thanks for what you do Al. Hector muchísimas gracias my friend um, I wanted to say thank you to Abigail for keeping things on track the thing that I'm encouraged by the most is all the passion of everyone here uh, and I think you all um, we all did say the same things what we want is a desire uh, to to raise the the quality of the life going forward for everyone in the community uh, no matter what the track is that they're on and I'm just encouraged uh, by the professionalism and the intelligence represented in this room. And I'm glad and humbled to just be, be sitting here on stage with all of you. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rafael. Abigail, tell me about your final thoughts. I know you probably have a ton. Please feel free. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I got to say it's a Friday night and I would have not wanted to spend my Friday night anywhere else. I'm, I'm really grateful for the collaborators here, the co-creators, the brilliant minds that I am with. And I, I peeked at everyone profile and I am just uh, humbled that we were able to gather together and have such quality conversation around many different topics. We spoke about politics. We spoke about leadership. We spoke about ed education in general. We each have a role to play. We each have our skill set. We each come with so much to provide and give and contribute towards the success of Latinos and, and just our, our children, our, our future. So les damos ganas, les echamos ganas rather, and know that every one of us that are in here are doing what we can to contribute to the greater good of all of our gente. Thank you, Abigail, for everything you do. And uh, I look forward to being part of your discussions because I know you lead some awesome ones. Dr. Pat 
Patrick Valdez. Tell me your thoughts. I know, man, I, I probably feel, Doctor, that, that we kept some of the, some of your gems at bay because I think you probably have so much more to share. Please share with us your final thought. Well, I'm going to just jump off or connect to what Ab Abigail said, which is, uh, look, I've, I've been a part of it. I've seen it. You know, I've lived it and I've written about it. Juntos y unidos podemos. And that's my closing thought. Thank you for doing this, Hector. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a wonderful statement. Alistair, I know you've been listening. Uh, you are currently a student in higher education from Mexico. And you had your try in uh, considering Europe, considering the United States. And ultimately, you chose Mexico. But I'd, I'd love your final thoughts on this as a student. Yeah, hey, Hector. Even though it's my first time speaking. Um, yeah, I tried uh, applying to United States and, and the UK. Even though I got into some universities, I didn't get the scholarship that I wanted. So I couldn't go. And also COVID popped up and it was kind of hard. So, but I stayed here in Mexico. And to be honest, I don't really regret it. It's going to be much cheaper. I'm going to have an amazing degree. I'm one of the really good university and I have a really good scholarship. So even though it is really hard to get a, one of those really juicy scholarships, in, but at least in Mexico, there's really good universities too. So uh, I'm honestly happy. That's it. <laughs> For those of you that don't know who Alistair is, you will. He hails from Querétaro, Mexico, and he's currently working on the project uh, on SpaceX with MIT. Uh, and he's working on a number of other amazing projects out of Mexico. And, and see, these are the students that we're talking about. Amazing students that are doing amazing things, yet they're not in the works for some of these one in a million scholarships. And that needs to change. And this is particularly the case for international students. And we can talk more about that in another room. Jeff, your final thoughts. Um, I would just say thank you for allowing me to even be a part of this. What you guys are doing is amazing. I think that I just think we need to change the process of how things go. I know in California, in order for like a teacher, anybody to get, uh, you know, to move up as a promotion, you have to have your superior write a letter of rec. So it becomes like a very like friends game. And I've seen this meeting with uh, up and down the state and district superintendents and the people that make it to the to the leadership positions are there because they're friends with the people that made it before them. Like it is a very much a game that a lot of them play and those things need to change. And then as far as the money side of it, the international students like Alistair who are amazing don't get those scholarships because international students, it is all about them paying that that 70,000 plus a year like oh, UCLA yeah. when in-state tuition is really only 35 like it's like they want they have so many families especially from like Japan willing to just pay full price and I see it at Pepperdine I'm an I'm a, a mentor there and there's a lot of uh, students coming over from Ch China and Japan because of the amount of families willing to pay full price and so that's that's that issue so those are a few different things and if we want the colleges to give money differently they have to do it they have to stop using enrollment management, meaning the whole making it a business. If these are nonprofits, they need to be ran like a business. And unfortunately, there's no one overseeing colleges about how they give money. Michelle Obama tried to make them put accurate calculators on their site, and they all said no and put calculators that are inaccurate using the National Center of Education Statistics site, which is just averages, which does nothing for anybody. And families end up wasting their time applying to schools they never would have got money from. So those are just my two cents. Thank you guys for even having these rooms. They're amazing. Oh my gosh, Jeff. Uh, you know what? The work that you're doing, buddy, is 
is the kind of work that's going to make people see the light. And I do believe that because you're bringing kind of new resources, new new resources to the table that really dramatically change the game. And I, I, I couldn't thank you more. Hopefully you get to do more of this. And if there's anything that we can do to collaborate, please feel free. Cristobal, I, I loved your statements about having more leadership uh, in the Latino communities. I will put my community in that group because I'd love to see a Latino leader of the University of Texas at El Paso one day and not someone from outside of our community. I'm with you on that, buddy. Give me your final thoughts. Amen, brother. From a, As a fellow Chicano, I'm totally with you on that point. Um, you know, the, the one, I'll say this. We have the inteligencia. We have the capital. We have the values. We we got them, right? This is where we have to do what, you know, what uh, Dolores Huerta will always say from the beginning. We have to organize and mobilize and take on the politics and the policies and education that are still deficit when it comes to our communities. We have to transform that and it is going to be part of that leadership and advocacy conversation. So uh, I think we're, by the just having this space and conversation, we're moving the, that conversation forward. So I'm blessed to be part of this. Thank you, Abigail, for inviting me and I look forward to having future conversations and future collaborations para seguir, seguir adelante. Gracias. Adelante. Absolutely, Cristóbal. I couldn't agree with you more. I just gave you a follow and uh, hopefully we can be in touch. And one of my favorite speakers by far uh, on Clubhouse is Latanya. She's going to be hosting her own session tomorrow. Latanya, I want you to tell us all about it, but I also want you to give us your final thought. I just wanted to say we have to go back to our community. Um, like we do on pre-K-12 education, we need more teachers of color. We need more professors, Latinos. We need to go back to our community and we have to help our people. We have to help our regions. We have to help people that are in leadership positions get there. So there you have it. This is the very first of a series of conversations we're going to be having on this very topic, not only on the podcast, but in conferences to come, including Educate, which is going on right now. We want you involved. If this was something that speaks to your heart, we want you to come on to Clubhouse and be a part of the community. Let's build the conferences that we all want to see. Let's have the conversations that we all want to have about the future, not only of education, but many industries, many fields. The future of higher ed is Latino because demographics are shifting. And when demographics shift, it causes a whole slew of things, not just in the field of higher education, but throughout. But our models need to change. Our customs need to change. Our traditions need to change. And we heard several options and avenues that we can explore and we can go down in terms of how to achieve this change. Micro masters are here. Micro bachelors are here. They present a dramatically lower cost point for more and more to be able to enroll and for more and more to be able to be highly educated at a fraction of the price. This is certainly a tool. We also now see after COVID decimated the education world that we can collaborate and look to different systems and different models without such difficulty as we used to be told time and again before that it was not possible, that it was too expensive, that it would never work. Well, we had to do it during COVID and we learned a lot. And we now know that we can provide education in a different kind of way. Now we need to figure out how to perfect that different kind of way. Total enrollment in higher education today is on a decline. It went from 19.5 million to 17.5 million in only a matter of three years. Now we're facing perhaps even steeper declines after COVID. 
The way in which we change that is we go to the communities that are ready, willing, able, and wanting this education. Seven million Latinos are currently college-aged in America today. Seventy-nine million are college-aged in Latin America. If we look to this demographic and look to provide an education to them, we can double, triple, even quadruple current enrollment figures in the U.S. alone. But things need to change. New models, new systems, new structures. Because if we don't, we're basically using old systems designed for someone else or a brand new community. And that hampers our own future. So I'll make the call again. If this is a subject matter that speaks to you, come by our conversations on Clubhouse. 28,000 Days to Live is how you can look us up for the podcast on Clubhouse. That's where we record this show live. But you can also be a part of Future X discussions. You can also be a part of the various rooms I pop in and out of, along with a set of amazing individuals that are currently running a conference. See you soon.